We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRankVid.com. All of the stats, tools, and info that I'll be discussing on this podcast can be found over at RickRankVid.com. Already got my big travelers article breaking down TPC River Highlands that is up on the website live right now that went up on Monday morning. I will have season long fantasy rankings up there on Tuesday, DraftKings article up on Thursday. A big event this week at a pretty unique and interesting golf course that we have a lot of data on. It feels like we're always in a little bit of a hangover mode coming off a major, but this is an elevated one with, um, a lot of the big names and a ton of opportunity, both on the DraftKings slate and in the betting board. So um, you can find all of my work regarding the Travelers up on the site right now, not to mention Cavs' wonderful ownership projections, um, all of the model builders and lineup generators and the largest statistical betting-focused and DraftKings-focused database on the internet all of that stuff you can find over at rickrungit.com. Promo code Andy, that is the important part. If you want to help me out, you just type in Andy in the coupon code so they know that I sent you, and we would love to have you as part of the team. All right, coming up on this podcast, my good friend Joey Doney, who I was talking to all day on Sunday about this Rory debacle. We were sweating that one pretty hard. We figured we'd do a podcast on it. Um, today, where we dive into everything that we saw at LACC, a very controversial U.S. Open. I've had a lot of time to think about um, the criticisms of the course, what I personally thought of the course, what I saw when I went to the course, my experience at the course, um, what the members thought of the course. I've talked to a lot of different people about this, gotten a lot of different opinions um, over the past 24 hours. I know that, you know, some people were asking for some earlier recap takes, but I wanted to, I wanted to let this one marinate for a bit because I think it is a complex conversation regarding how we feel about not just this club, but how that relates to what the U S open should mean for us. Um, the USGA's role in some of the criticisms, uh, what the U S opens identity should be, what we want, in a U.S. Open going forward, we talk about all of that stuff, not to mention a very uh, thorough analysis of the state of Rory McIlroy and, and what it feels like as a 
big time Rory fan to experience another heartbreaking defeat. This one, uh, probably, as I said, after the tournament ended, somehow stung a little bit more than uh, St. Andrews. And we break down all of the reasons why. Plus, at the end, got some travelers picks for you. Joe and I do a breakdown of that betting board as well. So jam-packed podcast, a lot of good stuff in here. Um, Let's bring on Joe. All right, Joey Doni is here. Tour picks on Twitter, Preferred Lions podcast. He does stuff with the tour junkies as well. Joe, first of all, happy Father's Day. Happy belated Father's Day. We got a lot to get to, man. I mean, we were talking pretty much all yesterday afternoon as we watched this final round of the U.S. Open. So I'll just ask you, where do you want to start? Do you want to start big picture LACC? Do you want to start Rory? Do you want to start Wyndham? Like, where do you want to go first? Because we got we got a couple big things we got to hit on. We have a lot of big things to hit on. Let's start with with golf course because I've been back and forth on this sort of teetering all week, <laughs> and I have some concerns, but also some things that I really like. Where I mean, you are the person that I respect just as much as anyone in terms of architecture and course setups and things like that. Where where do you land on how LACC sort of played out? Okay. So I don't know how I became the like send all of your LACC criticisms to me guy this week. Uh, It got to the point where people were tweeting me such ridiculous things about this golf tournament. I was like, does this have anything to do with the US Open anymore? Are you just really angry at something else? But I have never seen such aggressive discord towards a place. And That really surprised me. But I think, you know, a couple important points that I think the first is probably the scoring. And the thing that I would say, because I want to get your take on this too, I think a lot of people on Twitter that thought they were criticizing LACC were actually criticizing the USGA. And I think that there is a lot of confusion between setup and architecture. And for example, on 18, and I was just texting with a member about this, there's rough there. The USGA chopped it down for an inexplicable reason to me, but because players were talking about this allegedly earlier in the week, right? And in terms of like Thursday, for example, you know, I was talking to a lot of guys that were there on Tuesday and Wednesday. And the course was really bouncy and really firm. And the USGA allegedly got a little spooked and they threw a little water on it Wednesday night and they gave some Charmin ultra soft pin positions on Thursday. And, you know, they screwed up and took it a little bit too far. And they would say, well, for us, if you're asking us which direction we want to lose it. And we would way rather have it be a little bit easier than people like, than go in the other direction and have a situation like Shinnecock and the players are losing their shit. They don't care if a couple people on Twitter are losing their minds. They're, you know, they have such a tight rope to walk. So what I would say about the golf course is, you know, we can get into the architecture of it and, and stuff like that, but 
a lot of the reasons why we didn't get the U.S. Open that we did it that we wanted and atmosphere is a whole other conversation. And I'm happy to have a conversation about Los Angeles fans. And I'm happy to have a conversation about the corporatization of this U.S. Open. But if we are talking about the main criticisms that everyone had, which I believe were the low scores and the atmosphere and maybe a little bit the firmness, or I don't know, maybe mainly the low scores. A lot of this was because the USGA faced some extenuating challenges that I wouldn't give them, uh, a, I don't, I guess I give them a passing grade, but they had a bit of a tight rope to walk with a lot of this stuff. Yes, I agree with most all of your points there. Now, I am someone who like, being sour that Rory didn't win, like fired right. off a tweet last night that is like has I don't know hundreds of retweets and like people are people are either coming at me for it or they're like LACC, you're totally right. right. I was kind of kidding in the tweet about the 18th hole in Wyndham Clark, but I also kind of wasn't because I was sour that honestly I thought Rory hit a perfect drive straight if that fairway was 15 yards wide i felt like he would have hit it on the 72nd hole of the u.s open and wyndham clark hits this like gargantuan slice that my buddy who's an 18 handicap hits where he aims like left into the neighborhood and it comes back into the fairway and yeah, I was annoyed that he got away with that on and the he last been. hole I, of I was the U.S. Too. Open. Yeah. yeah, I think architecturally, like the design and everything that Jeff Shackelford and Gil Hands did was fantastic. I think the USGA botched it a little bit, not even totally. Like it, it finished at minus ten, which is okay. You're right. The first day was too soft in terms of the pin positions. They watered the greens. I believe leave after many groups and between the opening AM and PM waves. Joe, they were terrified about pace of play too. That was another aspect yeah. of it that I just forgot to mention that, you know, and the moving of the tee boxes up, it played yeah. 7,200 yards on Thursday mm -hmm. and they moved, they had these 300 yard par threes playing 220. So they were terrified yeah. about pace of play. And then they made the course way harder on Friday. The course played a stroke harder on Friday, tougher than, you know, the, tougher than recent us opens on Friday and yeah. people lost their shit about the pace of play. Yeah. The atmosphere thing was certainly valid. It irked me to a degree. I'm, I'm not going to lie, especially when the stuff came out about the amount of, of non-corporate general admission tickets that were available that I, I believe because Matthew Fitzpatrick and some players commented on it and Dan Rappaport reported that there was some truth to it of the actual club buying thousands of tickets. If that was some sort of an attempt to have less people on their property and make it more exclusive for like the high paying or like, I don't like that. I don't like that the USGA <laughs> sort of bended to that. And the other part, like the last thing I'll say is like, you know, the, the setup guy, because it's not so much on the course at that point. You're right. It's on the USGA to set up a proper test. And their chief setup guy is is John Bodenhammer. And I feel yeah. like he's sort of caved in recent years, to be honest. And um, he had gotten enough backlash and he sort of made making this into a tolerable experience and something that is hard but bearable for players. And 
it bothered me a little bit about the score, but more importantly, like the people who it bothered were my friends who are very casual golf fans who watch four weeks a year. And my dad and those type of people who are like, what the hell is this U.S. Open with guys firing 62s and 63s? And if you're not really appealing to hardcore golf fans, you're not appealing to very casual golf fans. And the players are sort of mixed on it either way because many of them actually want it to play hard. Like, who are you doing this for at some point? Like, the, we want to see carnage. Money, and I, it's one it's one week a year. Like, if the players don't like it, tough shit. Yeah. Um, okay. A couple things there. And I agree with pretty much everything that you're saying. To answer your question about who this is for, it's the dollars, which is one thing that we have, and the USGA made out like a bandit at this US Open. I mean, they made so, imagine being in a position where you make so much money on corporate boxes that you don't even need to sell tickets. You don't even want to sell tickets, yeah. right? And 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 so it was it was a bit of a tricky situation this year and with this golf course too. And, and I honestly, I think a, a fair criticism of the golf course is because I was out there all day on Saturday. This is not, and I talked about this in my preview pods and other people talked about this too, that had played the course before and had been to the course before. There are a lot of topographical challenges to this golf course that made it pretty much they could have had more people there but man it was pretty damn tough to follow i'm really good at watching golf tournaments and following golf tournaments i've been to like 7 of the last 10 us opens it is it was really tough to stand on the first tee and say, I'm going to go follow a group for 18 holes. That was a, there were some, a couple of nice spots to be and camp out. Obviously, if you were in a corporate tent, you were probably having a great time. But in terms of like the general admission crowd, if you're trying to watch and follow your guy for 18 holes, there are some major challenges to this golf course. And that's the downside of the Barranca stuff and the, all of the bottlenecks with different holds. And by the way, that's not necessarily anything new for, you know, op venues that have hosted big tournaments before I went to the 2021 Ryder cup at whistling Straits, and seven of those holes border Lake Michigan. Right. And people were complaining about that Ryder cup about how they had a lack of juice. Pebble can be pretty tough sometimes to watch golf. That's got, six holes bordering the Pacific ocean. I mean, I went to that Gary Woodland U S open too. not the easiest golf course to watch golf on St. Andrews. From what I've heard, really, really difficult golf course to watch golf on. Right. So I don't know if that should be the reason why we eject this place into the sun, but if we're talking atmosphere and fans, I am with that argument. The problem is, is that it became so, the lines became so blurred with all of the criticism that it just all turned into like, fuck this place. When it's like, we are actually having conversations about completely different things, right? We're having conversations right. about the USGA. We're having conversations about 
ticketing. We're having conversations about the members and the decisions that the USGA made corporately and and things of that nature as well. So it just turned into this giant like squash fest um, that I found pretty unappealing um, at certain points. And at the end of the day, you know, it's probably was a life lesson for me because you know, I spent some time talking to some other people and, uh, you know, I wanted to ask a couple of the members like, Hey, did you guys, did you guys get any of this noise? Did you hear any of this noise? And they were like, no, this was, this was a rousing success. We thought we had no (laughs) idea. People didn't, we had no idea. People didn't like that. And to be honest with you, the USGA probably feels the same way. They made a killing. I mean, you saw Mike Juan in the booth on 18. He, he looked like a pig and shit. So it, it, you know, I thought a lot of the criticisms were fair and maybe this is a good transition question to ask you is like, what, should be the U.S. Open's identity, right? Like, what should be the goal? What are we looking for? What what should this tournament be? Because you're right. Like, I think there's a bit of an identity crisis. You know, they're selling these hats in the pro shop with grit on it and then setting the course up on Thursday. Like, it's TPC Craig Ranch. So, like, what is it that we should be looking for in a U.S. Open? You know, I think... One of the challenges that they've experienced when going to a new course is course setup. They experienced this challenge, I think, with Chambers Bay to a degree, definitely with Aaron Hills. And then here in that, I I was upset that I felt like a lot of really good shots, particularly on the par threes, like the five wood, I think that Rory hit into seven was like such an incredible golf shot that really didn't get the reward that I thought it deserved when other guys were just basically ending up in front of the green and getting up and down for par. Um, so it's just a wash. The same thing. The other thing is like with the Bermuda rough, I think they were scared of that yes. and they left it too short. It was not nearly penal enough. The most, the only part that really felt like a U.S. open was getting in that wispy shit, like a yard off the green where guys were going like right under the ball the rough, I mean, there were options when you had to lay up, but you should have to lay up in a U.S. Open. I, I just didn't feel like it was penal to the degree that it should have been. And I think that that was a challenge for them in the unknown. I think going back to a course like next year, and I don't know your thoughts on Pinehurst, and I defer to you and guys like Andy Johnson and the architect guys on what makes a good course. But I know that it's hosted three U.S. Opens in the last 20 years, and only one single player has turned in a score lower than minus one. Mm-hmm. Minus one won it one year, even par won it one year. Timer went off the one year, but the next second place was minus one. Nobody's scoring there. And I don't think that, like, I don't think that that's like an extremely much more difficult course than like someplace like LACC. It just comes down to setup and it comes down to familiarity. So going back to places where they're familiar with the setup and how to make that golf course play hard, I think will get us back to the U.S. Opens that I think the majority of the fans, the majority of the players, and if you really 
boil it down and you ask like the USGA how they want it to play, they want it to be the toughest test. They, I don't think they like the fact that they've had the same winning score as the PGA Championship over the last six years. That's sort of their identity. And I think the the variable of having a brand new place to roll out there will take some of that off the plate for them. I think that's really well said. And you reminded me too of a really good point that Andy Johnson made that that I wanted to bring up as well, who I thought he was great on your podcast. I really enjoyed that Thank you. earlier in the week. I think this this wasn't on your podcast. It was either some fried egg thing or the shotgun start. But he said, think about the idea if you know the 10 best chefs in the world got together and all had restaurants in the same place and they all put out the same menu. How how idiotic that would be. Right. And I think the point that he was getting at is like, there should be some variety in these golf courses in the US Open rotation. I think it's fun that Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, from a gambling perspective, we, the things that we're looking for at Pinehurst next year are a little bit different than the things that we're looking for at LACC this year. And then we go to Shinnecock the next year, and it's a little bit different than that. And then we go to Marion, and it's a little bit different. And we go to Pebble, and it's a little bit different. And all those golf courses are the best golf courses in the world, and we should let them be the best golf courses in the world. And maybe when we go to LACC, you know, Joe, like I listened to a ton of content before this U.S. Open. You listened to a ton of content before this U.S. Open. Everybody had the winning score between minus six and minus 12. There was no, like even, even the people that had never been to this golf course and didn't have any intimate knowledge of this golf course all knew that this was going to be a little bit of an easier U S open because listen, there are some challenges to, you know, Los Angeles with the Marine layer and there's a little bit Mm -hmm. more width to this golf course. And there's some more birdie holes to this golf course, which I personally really enjoy more than, you know, like a Torrey pines or something like that. But I think you're right. I think that, you know, we should be going to, we should have a set group of golf courses that we go to every year and they should all be an extremely difficult test, right? But I do not want my Tory Pines model to look like my LACC model, right? And I do not. And personally, you know, if this is a situation where, you know, people would rather see a US Open one at minus three at Tory Pines than minus 10 at LACC, and like that's your position, I'm cool with that. Right. Like if you're like consistent on that and like you want that winning score between minus three and plus five, right? Like I'm cool with that. That's not where I fall on it. And 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 I'm a little bit more lenient on what the winning score is. I care a little bit more about how players get to the winning score and what it looks like getting to that winning score. But I think you nailed it with the, you know, this is a lot about how the USJ sets up these golf courses, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to put a bow on this is I just pray, I just pray if you want to keep going back to some of the best 
golf courses in the country. I just pray that all of those people that were losing their mind about the scores, I hope they're pro bifurcation. I just really, I really, really hope that they're pro bifurcation because if you don't get the bifurcation argument, then I point you to Scotty Scheffler having wedges in on 540 part. 540 yard par fives. And I sent out the tweet of this LACC scorecard, Joe, two weeks before the US Open. The amount of people losing their mind. This is way too long. This is crazy. 300. And it was too easy. It was too freaking easy. So that is, that's the only final point that I would make on the scoring thing. I'm with you. I want to, I want my U S opens to be minus five, even par, maybe even fuck around and go plus par, but you are going to have some big, big, big time challenges unless you either, you know, dig up Reese Jones from the grave and make two yard wide fairways or you roll the ball back. Yeah, it's a great point. And you made another good point of like, even, and I'll take some onus on this myself of like people who complained about the course all week were also the people that like myself who did podcasts and talked about the winning score is going to be between six and 10 under par. And there was going to be birdie holes and there was going to be double bogeys. I got exactly what I talked about and everyone (laughs) told me was going to happen. Yet I still found ways to like complain about aspects of it. I think it's just sort of, a reality and encompassment of sort of the world we live in and just Twitter being able to fire off tweets in a matter of second, everyone having an opinion. Um, But yeah, I I think you made some valid points there as well about hopefully in the coming years, particularly like Pinehurst and Shinnecock back to back. I think that the goal in terms of if they have a winning score in mind should be more along like even par. And I think that's what most people want to see. Do you think also, because I was thinking about this and I want to get your take on this and and this will be the last thing we do on the golf course and then I want to get to Rory and Wyndham, but it felt to me like part of the disdain and the hatred that people had about this golf course was not just directed at the golf course. Um, it was also, you know, part of it maybe was a little bit directed at Los Angeles. Like I remember when I, um, when I went, got to college and I went to a Northeast boarding school and, um, you know, the, I remember getting to college and being like, oh my gosh, these LA kids are so soft. And, you know, now it's the city that I want to live in for the rest of my life. But I think part of it too, is like you get the golf course and then you put LA on top of it. And then you have somebody tweeting out all of the the rules yeah. of the golf course. And then you get the atmosphere concerns in there. And then you get the corporate tents in there. And it just turns into this smorgasbord of like everything that the internet hates. And yeah. I, I, I was trying to figure out because, listen, part of this, I think, is what LACC seemed to represent to people. Um, and it is one of the most exclusive golf clubs in the world. And, you know, this is a golf club that pretty much only let in white Christian males as members essentially through the 1970s. And, you know, I think a lot of the frustration came into this giant bundle of this is not just a golf course that we detest. This is also everything that this seems to represent. Um, and 
I would say that if you hold that stance, you might have some concerns about a little golf course in Georgia that hosts a little tournament called the Masters that has pretty much the same rules. Mm -hmm. But do you think that we should be going to public courses for for National Open? Right? Do do you think that part of what LACC seemed to represent stoked this fire in people that fueled the fire with a lot of the frustrations because LACC is really snooty and it is really corporate and it is really private. And it's not that much more private than Oakmont or Shinnecock or Marion or Augusta. The rules are pretty much the same as those, but it felt like there was also this underlying disdain for everything that LACC seemed to represent. Did you sense that at all? Yes. Um, I think it's a very valid point. I think that it was, for me, it was not so much Los Angeles driven. It was more about the social constructs and the have and the have nots. And uh, like, frankly, a, a jealousy factor that is there and exists with people who, um, tend to be much better off than you are. And then when you have the opportunity to then take a shot at someone and you feel a sense of pretentiousness or elitism sort of check in to play here, um, and these people don't want us at their club and they're buying up their right. own tickets, and I can't get to see a tee shot on 17 because it's a giant Rolex grandstand with an open bar and like $1,000 dresses and high heels. It does get that sense and that irks people the wrong way. I don't think that I think there's a place for all kinds of different golf courses. And if people want to pay the initiation, they want to be a part of this club and they want to set their own rules and have in place what is acceptable and unacceptable there. I think that's okay. I think that's okay at Augusta national. I also think it's okay for public golf courses to get their shot too. And you see an Aaron Hills or you see a place that is more accessible, even like a Harding park, which I hated, but the idea that you can go and access that place for like $50, I think appeals to a more wider spectrum of the general golf fan base. I experienced it. Like even down here, you came to my club, which is sort of a private club and it's a lot of equestrian and horse people. And the Coca-Cola family and people with a lot of money there. There's also a course like five minutes from here. And Matt Gannon will attest to it called Palm beach national. That's like there's beer pong tables and there's dudes in sleeveless tees and flip flops. And you can go there and have a range. Like I enjoy both of those things. And there's parts of the, the sort of private club experience that rub me the wrong way and how people can act from time to time. Um, and I think that that did have a factor and gave people an easy target when these sort of tweets came up about the membership and no cell phones and the strict rules that apply at this club. And then something maybe doesn't look great on TV or what they expected to play out. It just stokes the fire. And um, Twitter can oftentimes bring out the the worst in people, as we've seen. And that goes back to the earlier conversation we were having about what is what should the U.S. Open's identity be? And mm -hmm. if your argument is you want the open rotation to be Pebble Beach and Pinehurst and Torrey Pines and Beth Page, like I think that's an appealing argument. That's not what I want because I don't want to lose 
some of these great courses that happen to be private from the rotation. But like, if that's what mm. you think our national opens should be like, I'm, I'm here for that argument. I hear you to me. What I think the U S opens identity should be is we go to the best golf courses on the planet and we are the best test and the USGA gets their pick. The USGA gets their pick over the PGA. Like they get, they tend to get preferential treatment on these golf courses, right? Like the PGA ain't getting a shot at Oakmont. The PGA ain't getting a shot at Pebble Beach, right? And so what I think the identity of the US Open should be going forward is that I do not want a situation where every venue looks like Winged Foot and Torrey Pines and Oak Hill to a certain extent. (laughs) And Reese Jones is exonerated, right? And it's that even par, you know, super, super tight fairways, hack it out of the rough situation like that. I would like a diverse group of open venues that are the best golf courses in the world. And maybe some of the easier ones are Pebble Beach and LACC. Maybe some of the harder ones are Oakmont and Shinnecock, right? Mm -hmm. And some of them are public and some of them are private. And some of them are in big major cities like LA and some of them are more destination based. Um, But I think what the U S open should be striving for at the end of the day is like, is this the best test of golf on the planet? Right. And I think at the end of the day, like did the best player win? I would say the best player came in second, but like, all the leaderboard stuff, right? Like this is, you got the leaderboard, you got the best players. There was no doubt in my mind. There wasn't even that random, this guy gained to found a way to gain a million strokes putting on this course, right? The best players that week were there at the end. And maybe that's a transition to start talking about a rather unfortunate outcome for both of us. Yeah, um, you're right, and it was we. You're you're right when you sort of let off the show that we were texting all day and just mainly just really sort of rooting on Rory, and it always felt like it was on the precipice and on his fingertips, and we were just waiting for that moment of capitalization and that moment of sort of step on the throat and take this, this tournament. And it just didn't come to fruition. I actually am inclined to be very positive. And there are, I'm sure there are people that will call me an apologist for him or whatever it is. But I think that this was a much better end result than St. Andrews. I think it was more positive than what happened at the Masters. I think than the PGA, just how he went into this tournament, right? About it seemed like his focus was just in putting in the work and absorbing himself in the effort and just being the first person out on the practice range you know you and i both talked to rick a lot he said he was the first person out with tea times during the practice round he was basically in and out not doing any of the media it was just essentially yeah all about the work for him and i loved that i wish that it would have came to him but ultimately you know he didn't make a putt but he was also leaving himself 42 feet for Bert. So yes, they were close in many instances, 
Yeah, some breaks went Wyndham Clark's way and he got everything up and down. But this tournament ultimately was there for the taking and it didn't happen for him. And it's been nine years and this monkey on his back is just continuing to sort of get heavier and heavier. And I, I, I'm rooting for him at this point. I felt like it was a great number and a great opportunity to sort of jump on at the right time. And I do think that, he, like you said, to sort of start us off here with the question, he played the best golf of the week. He did. And one thing that I have been on for quite some time banging the drum about Rory is my biggest concern with him is his shot selection, particularly in major championships and his strategy. And that's why I've been somebody to question if a caddy change is in order. And we can talk a little bit about that too. But I thought that his, first of all, you nailed it. He he to me this was more crushing than St Andrews because he played a lot better here. And I thought I, I not only did he hit the ball better than he hit the ball at St Andrews, but I thought that his game plan this week I had a, and I was talking a lot um throughout the week uh to Joseph Lamagna about this who's also been on this thing with Rory where it's like he tries to curve the ball too much. He tries to do too much. He doesn't know when to be aggressive and when to be conservative. Sometimes he's a little bit too conservative when it's time to be aggressive. And when it's time to be aggressive, he doesn't realize that he should be taking his medicine. I thought that in terms of shot selection, it looked a lot, a lot, a lot better. There was even one um, time on eight that Joseph pointed out to me and he was like, man, the Rory I know would have tried to overhook that one and got himself into where Wyndham did on eight. And he hit this high little, very safe cut to the right side of the green, which the front, should, yeah. which should have set up an extremely easy two putt. And it was an easy two putt. It was an easy two putt. And he missed the four footer, but in terms of strategy and game plan, um, and focus. I loved everything that I saw with Rory. To me, I you know I still can't let the guy off the hook because I think there, there's so much nuance in the idea of did he choke? There's so much nuance, and I'm still trying to figure out where I stand on the idea of how lucky putting is, and the idea of if somebody outplay somebody from T to green and just doesn't make any putts. And I think I'm starting to fall on the side of, I need to have a little bit higher standards. And this falls into like the Scotty conversation that everyone's been having for months. I, I probably need to start having a little higher standards for putting at the highest level. Right. And I think with Rory, it's easy to sit here and say, God, the guy hit the ball better than anyone else on property, and he just didn't make any putts. And there are 15 instances throughout the week where these tiny little things that could have gone his way. But at the end of the day, if you just go big picture, it's like if this guy is who we think he is, um, if he's the best player of this generation since Tiger and Phil in talent, which I do believe that he is. He could have won this thing by like five or six, to be honest with you. And that's taken nothing away yeah. by Wyndham. He, you know, Wyndham, but the guy was dying to give it away 
dying to give it away on 15 and 16. He bogeys both of those holes. And, you know, obviously 18, that's a whole different conversation. He hit some really gutsy shots throughout that round. But I think where I land with Rory is like somewhere in the middle. Like, I don't think he's incapable of winning majors. I do think he will win another major. But man, this one stings greater than anyone else has in the past. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I agree with almost everything you said. The one thing that I would maybe push back on a little bit. So when you talk about strategy, there were times, I want to say it was either the fourth or the fifth hole, and this may be wrong, where um, he really couldn't take on the pin because he was in the rough, right? And Mm -hmm. he played it out to the left-hand side of the green and almost made that putt that he almost slipped in from off the green from like a hundred feet. And I thought that that was such sound strategy in terms of not going for it there and leaving himself the opportunity to get up and down for par when you mispositioned yourself off the tee. On the other hand, there were moments where he set himself up perfectly to be aggressive. And I don't know, and this is the part that I don't know. I don't know if it comes down to execution or if it's where he's trying to hit the ball. But there were parts in pins that I thought he could have really taken on from where he was at that he didn't do. And I don't know if that comes down to where just where the shot ended up. 18 was a perfect example. Like, how do you leave yourself 45 feet there? On 14, I thought that he made a mistake in that lie by not. I mean, the guy hits a five wood better than any person walking planet Earth. Like that was a moment right there where I think you have to go for it. If you want to win a major and if it takes your caddy talking into you, if it's a mentality thing, it's like, look, this is sitting down a little bit in Bermuda rough. I'm used to it. I'm the strongest guy out here out of the rough. I hit my five wood better than anyone. Let me get this up near the green, especially when you know that you kind of struggle a little bit from 125 yards. So he wasn't aggressive on that shot out of the rough he lays up and then he decides to be aggressive on the next one and leaves it a little bit short and in the bunker and made bogey which ultimately cost him the tournament so i like part of me sees that and i wonder if there's spots where like he's just not going for it enough and playing a little bit too conservative when you're in better position off the tee than anyone else could possibly imagine 381 yards in the fairway. It's got to be a green light and you should be expecting to put that ball within six to eight feet. And that's, that's such a good point too. And, and I retweeted this, um, 
Did you see that Luke Deneen thread on how he thought that was a big mistake on 14 2 not I didn't no. getting five? Yeah. So and and I, you know, I initially gave him the benefit of the doubt on that one, thinking that he was laying up to the exact number that he wanted. And and he just, you know, he said what he said with the wind gust thing. And it was just poor execution on the wed wed shot to begin with. But, you know, Luke put out a great thread about the scoring dispersion and there's, you know, two guys, I think all day made a birdie on that hole from outside of a hundred yards. And the thing with Rory too, is it's like, man, you may be the best driver of the ball that I've ever seen. You, you just may be, you may be the best. You certainly, you know, maybe John Rahm and Cameron Young are in your stratosphere, but you're probably the best driver of the ball of this generation, right? And so if you have that weapon, you need to understand that you need to pair that with being a good wedge player, man, because you are going to give yourself so many opportunities on these golf courses that other players are unable to have because of that massive weapon. And it's just so funny that the one thing that everybody kind of knew was a problem with Rory ended up being the thing that did him in. And, and, you know, maybe that's a little harsh. I don't know if I would say that that one wedge shot on 14 ended up being more detrimental for his chances than the sum of his parts with the putting. Um, the putting was probably ultimately ended up being a bigger issue at the end of the day. But that's why I go back to the caddy thing. And I don't know if you you notice this, but I, you know, I go to all of these golf tournaments and Harry doesn't help him at all on the green. Doesn't even talk to him. He doesn't even talk to him at all uh, on the greens. And did you see how how Wyndham's caddy was like? Oh, he was so good. Up on every, on he every was like a life coach. Pod and Ted Scott does this too. With Ted Scott's the guy doing the aim point, and like, man, it's like I, I've. It goes back to the wedge shot on fourteen too, maybe where it's like Rory said that there was a wind gust. And he should have waited 15 more seconds to hit the shot. Harry's just sitting there silent in the background. And it's like, I've been to enough golf tournaments. You watch enough golf. This maybe isn't the best example to use because the guy's in the dumpster right now. But I've seen Bones tell JT, wait a second. Wait. And and, and another guy who actually does this really well, and I know this because I've I've watched them a lot, but like... Austin Xander's caddy, who's also Xander's best friend. So I'm not saying Harry's incapable of doing this. And I know it's probably hard to hire your best friend, but Austin will tell Xander, like, take a second, bro. And, and yeah. we'll never know if bones was on the bag or if Ted Scott was on the bag or if Steve Williams was on the bag, if he would have told Rory to pause, right? We'll, we'll yeah. never know that. Right. But after a certain point, when you're the best player of our generation and you haven't won a major in the prime of your career in nine years. I just think it's fair to have the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. It irked me on 14 just because I've seen him in Sundays of majors where he's five back and he hits that five wood every time when he's five back mm -hmm. and when he's one back or tied to lay like I can see the layup there if you're if you've got a two or three stroke lead. 
like you're tied, you're one back, you're two back at that point. Like you have to play it like you're five back in these majors where you come storming in with a 62. Like I would love to see him adapt a little bit of that. And you're right. Harry doesn't, I even noticed it on 18 when like Rory teed off and was walking down and Harry wasn't talking to him and Rory had to like stop him because he wanted like an energy bar out of the bag. He's like, can I get something like stop a second? But just like, if you're going to be a friend, at least bring like the friendship vibes there and like try to loosen him up a little bit. But just to like silently walk next to him was, was awkward. I caught that too. I think it's really hard to fire your best friend. And I think he wants to win one with Harry. I think mm-hmm. he wants to prove that he can win one with Harry. Yeah. And, and, and I, unfortunately, I don't think that he's going to fire him until he either wins one or, you know, he goes into a Justin Thomas esque slump and he's too good to do that. Right. Rory hasn't mm-hmm. left the top 10 since, you know, the, Obama administration, right? Or the right. first Bush and the second Bush administration. He's been there since like 08, <laughs> right? So, you know, I I think to put a cap on the Rory thing, um it's almost like O'Kill in the sense that Rory is always a Rorschach test, right? If you want to walk away from this saying, now there's even more scar tissue, the guy is never going to get it done. It's an argument. Like yeah, I'm sure a lot ammo. of people, you've got more ammo. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. And I think it's like an argument. If you want to walk away from this incredibly encouraged with his ball striking, um, his shot selection, his mindset, his attitude, how he spoke to the media, the things that he said after that's a take too, right? Like you can have mm-hmm. that take too. Um, and if you want to walk away from this and just go big picture and say, listen, man, if it's, Wyndham Clark down the stretch on that golf course. Like, man, the best thing about majors is that they're fleeting and they don't come around too often. And, and, you know, if you're not getting these at 33 years old, um, they're just not going to be that many more chances where it winds up. I mean, this was a two man race. We didn't even talk about like Scotty was bad to on Sunday. Um, and he's not going to get any shit because, you know, being second is generally gets the bird, the bear of the brunt than, than being third. But, um, this is a two horse race all day, right? Ricky properly acquitted himself pretty early. And, you know, if you're not getting it done here on this golf course, if you can't shoot minus two at LACC, um, to beat a guy who hasn't finished 70th in a major in his career, When's it going to be? And then I guess the it's a circle because the comeback would be: Have you seen the next two venues, Royal Liverpool, Valhalla? So it's just a it's yeah. it's all a circle with the Rory. It's like you could just you know you could say whatever you want. If you hate him, you got ammo. If you love him, you got ammo. And at the end of the day, you and I are just crushed once again. We're just crushed with a second place in a major at a good betting price too, which was which was tough to stomach. I would have never. Congrats to the people that landed on Wyndham Clark. I'm less sour today than I was yesterday. Um, It it was a good pick in hindsight. I would have never, never gotten there. Would you have ever been there? No, I would have never been there. And I'm happy to own that. I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy to own that. I, I, I didn't really have a ton of interest in backing a guy that had never finished inside the top 70 in a major before. And, um, 
that's not to say about his talent, right? I mean, the dude gained 19 strokes to the field in an elevated event. Um, but no, he mm-hmm. was he was never in he was never in consideration for me. What about and I want to ask you about these two guys because I know that you're very high on both of them, and I've been critical of both of them. Um, Xander and Patrick Cantley. <laughs> oh boy. Like they're Wikipedia Hall of Famers already. Like if you look at their Wikipedia page and their major records, like you're gonna be like, these fucking guys are incredible. But once again, they're they're not a part of the story. And they're there. And I was a little bit critical of, uh, and you talked about Austin, and I know that you're privy to sort of that relationship, but I thought some of, I questioned some of his decision-making. And I don't know how much of that is both of them, but the round that he played with Rom, the three putt on 15, where he tried to play it all the way up and around the hill, um, thought was a mistake because he saw Rom putt it right before him and get it to three feet and just two putt. And he kind of just laughed that off with Austin, which I saw, and I didn't really love it. And then obviously the situation in the bunker where he clipped two of them and it, and to me, they, it looked like he hit the shot he was intending to hit, which makes me like, it's not like he caught it fat, which makes me believe that it was a bad club choice and it was just a bad decision. And we see that factor in, in major championships so often. We saw it hurt Victor Hovland at Oak Hill. We saw it kill Corey Connors. Like bad decision making just cripples you in major championships and it's accentuated there. And both of these guys seem to just really flirt with it, but it it doesn't feel like they're ever really there. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt the I, the way that I felt about Cantlay and Xander heading into the week is kind of what I just touched on with Rory, where it's like, if not now, when with these <laughs> guys? And I really thought that at least one of them was going to make like a big statement this week. And, you know, I guess shooting a 60, like you could, Xander was relevant in this golf tournament. He was a, yeah. he was a very, he, he was, was a very, he was a very relevant part of this golf tournament. Um, but I, I don't know how much of Saturday's round you caught. And I checked the stats to see if they bore it out too. It was, it, it, and they did, but I don't know what the, I don't know if he woke up on the wrong side of the bed on Saturday or or what the hell happened there, but that was like an out of bodily bad round of, it was actually a really good 73. I mean, that could have been yeah. a 77 or a 78 easily from Xander. Um, but it just always seems like, with those guys and you know, with Cantley, I was laughing cause I called them the disgusting brothers. And, you know, <laughs> it, it was only a matter of time before, you know, late on Sunday, you look at the leaderboard. I think he immediately bogeyed after this, but Cantley was T six on Sunday for like 45 minutes in this tournament tied with Xander. And I was like, it's only a matter of time before they found themselves together elastic and on this leaderboard. But it just feels like with both of them, Cantlay seems to be the slow start thing. And Xander seems to be get himself in the mix and then have a bad Saturday. Usually it feels like seems to be the trend going on with Xander. So um, I thought this was an incredible course fit for both of them. I stand by that. Um, but yeah, it seems, I mean, are you, let me ask you a question. Um, what's your, what's your buy number on these guys at majors going forward? 
right? Because I bet them at 17 and 22 and that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Like I, I don't, I can't tell you, I mean, we'll see how I feel about how they're playing and my breakdown of Royal Liverpool majors in the future. But like, what's your buy sign on these guys? Because man, I really hope they do start dropping a little bit in, in, in the betting markets. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's really what it comes. I think some of the the disappointment comes down to is constantly at 12 or 14 or 16 or 18 to one. I don't feel like is a proper price. And if we're going to judge their performances in majors and really being there, I don't know that I'm going to get there like 25 to 28 to one. I can see, but they're, what are they? The fourth and fifth best players in the world right now in terms of OWGR in my mind, like I don't care the course fit. I'll take Cam Smith over either one of them. And he's like 30 to one. And I just think that statistically this may not bear out, but you give me a major championship test and like that guy can finish fourth and he feels relevant and he feels scary. And he played, I think he played the sixth hole one over for the week. And like, if he plays that one under, like he is right there and he can just make everything and he plays with an aggression and like, I just love him. So as long as like, they're going to place, and I don't know if this is like a live thing or, or it's just a a less popularity thing, but as long as there's players like ham at 30, like I'm happy to sort of pass Xander and can't lay in majors. He's going to be dangerous at Liverpool too. I mean, I haven't yeah. done, I haven't done a, and I texted you that I haven't done a full breakdown of that golf course. And, and maybe it ends up being a situation where, I mean, it's, it, it, I'm flagging the possibility that it could be too narrow to the point where it trips somebody up like Cam Smith, but. He won at TPC Sawgrass, losing five strokes off the tee, right? So he was kind of there. He had less game at Oak Hill and he was still kind of there. Yeah, right. Exactly. So yeah, I think I think I'm with you. I mean, I I think with those guys, I stand by how I felt about their course fits. And at the time, obviously, you look back at this retrospectively and you're like, yeah. 17 and 22 felt a little short. They were the best numbers in the market too. So like, you know, they were going off at most places. Cantlay was going off at this U S open at like 14 to one um, yeah. in, in, in a lot of places. And Xander gets down to Xander was like 14 to one at Oak Hill. Right. So I hope this is a bit of an inflection point in terms of um, where maybe you know the market tends to have confidence in in, in them and in, in terms of the major championships. If I gave you over under 0.5 on both of them, are you taking the over or under finish their career for majors? Yeah, over over. Yeah, I think me they'll too. both get. They're too good. They're both top seven players in the world. Me too. And so that's yeah. where it's it's tricky is these weeks happen and it's like yeah. I talk myself. I'm like, well, they are going to get one. So why yes. isn't this course the perfect opportunity? But anyway, I mean, um, I thought that was an excellent breakdown on, we covered most of the stuff. I mean, is there any stones left unturned with the U S open before we talk a little travelers at the I end? I mean, Scotty, it's just like, it's, it's so good. And so leading for him around the greens. Like it just feels like he's kind of had a bad season. It was interesting. And I talked a little bit about this on, on my show and sort of the final thoughts, but, on 18, 
he hits that little cut, that low cut to the back of the green and takes that slope to like nine feet. And Paul Azinger, who had some horrendous takes for four straight hours, said um, the game of golf. He said the game of golf is just coming so easy to Scotty Scheffler right now. And I'm sitting there thinking, ask him that and he'll tell you no in a heartbeat. Like the game of golf, something like parts of it, he's hitting it really well. But you can see the frustration and anguish that the game of golf is placing on him. And it's like you can be hitting it. You can hit a golf ball in the air better than anyone on the planet, or you can be trying to break 100. And the game of golf is equally as hard. Like it's as hard for Rory and Scotty as it is for me going out there trying to shoot 85 like there it's all about perspective and they're finding elements but the game of golf never comes easy to anyone and just for someone who can hit it in the air as good as anybody is just not able to do it on the ground <laughs> and roll it and it's just so close and it just feels like another tournament where you know he could just be on one of the more epic runs that we've ever seen and he just hasn't capitalized the floor is just so high. And I texted you this a couple of times on, on Sunday where it's just like, man, he's, he's just lurking. Like, I don't, I don't know if I actually think he's going to win, but he just will not go away under any circumstances. And that's because, you know, when you hit the ball that way and you are just a walking, he's gained over seven strokes, ball striking, like 12 starts. He's going into territory where it's like, We've passed the no one's ever done this before and are starting to get into, I don't think anyone else is ever going to do this again territory with the way that he's hitting the ball right now. Um, so, you know, I, obviously I think with Scheffler, it's like there's going to, he's going to put himself in position probably every single week until something goes wrong with the ball striking. And it will like, it's not going to last forever. Like he's probably, something's going to happen in his swing and he's going to lose a little bit of confidence. And if we know golf, the way we know golf, that's probably when the putters start going to, going to start to turn around. Right. And so, you know, I think with Scotty, it's like, I'm buying the guy long-term, obviously, how could you not? Um, I'm still lukewarm on the, is a Scotty run of dominance good for golf? And I just, the, the TIO on seven, I think it was the pace of play, mm. the Ted Scott of it all. I, I just, I went from being a massive, this guy is super, super underrated to now he's very properly rated. Um, and he just doesn't have, he doesn't have that it factor for me that when I watch him golf, I am rooting for him. It's not inspiring the same confidence that I do when I when I watch somebody like Rory play. I agree with you 100%. He sort of started to rub me the wrong way from the pace of play stuff to the the relief and sorry I I never got to apologize to you for bringing you in the mud with with Ted Scott on the uh PGA Championship thing. But I took the video and you just replied and didn't Ted Scott fire back at you or something? I wait did that happen? Because I was at yeah. Oak Hill that week, so I was all I was like, uh, "Oh yeah, Ted Scott replied to your." You said something along the lines of like, "I put this on Ted Scott." Also, when he <laughs> took he five respond? minutes to hit, yeah, you have to go back to that. He <laughs> oh responded. My God, I, I can't wait. That's what, like, what oh, he said. He's gonna hate me. 
What did he I don't say? remember. It was something like it was just like snarky, like thanks, thanks a lot, Andy, or something like that. Like, but he saw it. He saw it. So you might not be having him on Inside Golf anytime soon because of me. Um. All right. Well, let's do a little bit of travelers. I don't want to do a ton of travelers. Okay. You've been very generous with your time already, man. I and I guess maybe I have it wrong because the heritage supposedly was a big moneymaker for the TV networks. And I guess a ton of people turned tuned into the heritage coming off the juice of the master. So maybe the strategy is, um, we get all these people excited about golf and then, you know, they're doing it on Sunday with their dads. How can we bottle that and get them to tune in for one more week? But man, I, I, I struggle with the elevated nature of this event. And, and I think, a lot of players too. I mean, we haven't, they can't really withdraw anymore because of the nature of the elevated schedule, but oh, man, LA to, I, I make that trip a couple of times a year that the LA to, I don't know where they're flying into. And I'm sure a lot of them are flying private, but man, that is a, um, that is, that's an interesting scheduling spot. As I like to say in the NFL. Yeah, we could definitely use sort of an off week. We we talk about it often. It does feel like they cram these in at the inopportune time. I do think travelers, if they're I I I don't like the elevated event series. I think it's probably the last season that we see it in this form. Um, but I think travelers deserved one of the elevated events just because of how it's one of the best attended events. It's a great course. It has memorable golf holes that like mm -hmm. other courses that may be better suited. Like I just know like some of the holes, I can just picture them of seeing them over the years. It's interesting. Some of the guys, like you mentioned that have chosen um, like not to come this week, like they made such a big deal out of what was it? Rory skipping the heritage. Right. But mm -hmm. then, you know, like Spieth isn't here this week. He's a former champion of this event. And like, he's, skip like is this his one week or didn't he already withdraw from another one so i don't really know how it all works they're all back here again they're all teeing it up it's a great golf course and and i'm sort of cautiously optimistic that we're going to get another good tournament but like what we've seen the first two times out is a matthew fitzpatrick win and an emiliano grio win so maybe it's a week where there is a little fatigue at the top of the board it's what we've kind of seen thus far do you think you're going there? Like if I gave you, I'll give you right now, all the guys under 30 to one is Scheffler, Rom, Cantlay, Rory, Xander, Hovland, Morikawa. I mean, all those guys played well at the U.S. Open. Um, yeah. It was probably a more strenuous week for Rory and Scheffler than it was for Hovland and Morikawa. Uh, mm -hmm. But do any of those guys have your attention at the top? Uh, yeah, I bet. I bet Victor. Um, I got a twenty-one to one on him. I think um, his his sort of wedge proximity has has been fantastic. I think second best in the entire field, if not the best, over the last twenty-four rounds play. Basically, one twenty-five to one seventy-five. Which you know, in your article, you noted that like there's a huge percentage of shots that come from that sort of range this week compared to an average PGA Tour stop. Um, the tee to green stuff has been great. I think this is a place that 
I think this is a place that sort of will reward some of his new chipping methods, which you've kind of gone mm-hmm. into detail about that I've heard too. Um, I it, visually, I know it's probably architecturally very different, but visually, I kind of get like a little bit of memorial vibes mm-hmm. just in the look of the golf course from a TV standpoint. Now that may be totally different than how it actually plays out there, but he's playing great. And if you give me the choice of him over Morikawa, I'll take Hovland every time right now based on their form. No, you're right. The types of shots that you're going to have to hit, and TBC River Highlands is pretty tough around the greens, actually, just like Memorial mm-hmm. is, in a sense, statistically at least. The types of shots that you're going to have to hit around the greens at TBC River Highlands are very similar than what you see at Memorial. He can absolutely do a little bit of that chopping motion. I, yeah. I'm going back to Cantlay. Um, I got okay. a 12. I bet the guy here every year. Uh, last year, last year was, I mean, do you remember when he hit, he chunked a ball into the water? He hit it like 80 yards on a 180 yard par three. I mean, he was, that, that was the disgusting brothers grand opening last year. They were right oh, yeah. there ready to take that one. And Cantlay surprisingly was the one that really seemed to wilt down the stretch I think he's yeah. bound to win at this golf course. Um, and I think 12's okay. Um, I say, I've seen him as low as nine. I certainly don't endorse that. Um, but of the elite players, I think that, and I think it's going to be pretty easy this week, just because from what I've heard about the amount of rain that they've gotten in that area, I went to boarding school in that area and still have a couple friends hmm. that my cousins live up there. Um, and we did see it start to get, you know, last year Xander won at minus 19. I think we're probably in store for 18 to 22, maybe again this week, even though, you know, sometimes it has played a little bit harder. Cantley's is still the guy that I, he's still the best bent grass putter in the world, um, over the last three years. And he's still the guy that I trust the most to get to a lower score and that's games favors easier scoring conditions. I think that this golf course um, takes a little bit away from what Rory does best, takes a little bit away from what Rom does best. You look at Rory and Rom and Scheffler splits on long golf courses versus shorts golf courses, and they really get their advantage on longer golf courses, whereas Cantlay actually raises his baseline on shorter courses. So I'm going with Cantlay at the top. Anyone else you want to mention before we get into the mid-tier? Uh, no, no one else up, no one else up top sub 30 to one for me this week. Okay. So this big kind of, and, and these numbers have been all over the place. So I'll I'll just kind of open it up. We'll do, uh, we'll do a section where throw out one or two guys you like between like 30 and hundred. And then, and then we'll, we'll do a, a bomb or two at the end. Okay. So there were uh, actually, I think there is a lot of good value on the betting board in this like 35 to 50 range. I think these guys are live this week. This is where I got Fitzpatrick at the heritage. He's right back at that number. He's a really good player to be 35 to one, especially if you're under the impression that there could be a potential less focus and ambition for Scotty and Rom and Rory this week, which I think could prove true. Um, Finau is a good value there. I actually went with both Kims. I went with Tom Kim and Siwoo Kim. I got a 50 and a 55. 
you know, Tom, it's weird because he actually hasn't played well on short courses, although I do think that's ultimately going to be his course fit. He's he yeah. started to show up on these longer courses. I do think something caught back on with the iron play a little bit at Augusta, and he's been able to carry that with the exception of, I think, Memorial, and he had a good week on approach last week. And then Siwoo is just kind of like, like we talked about, you know, some of the guys in terms of an outright market and you have to finish first. Second place doesn't matter. And the aggression that he is able to play with on Sunday is something that is really appealing for me. Um, he's actually number one in the entire field in fairways gained over the mm -hmm. last 24 rounds, which is like you normally think Russell Henley, Ches Reavy, like I would not normally associate that with Siwoo Kim. So he's hitting a ton of fairways. He's super aggressive. He can get really hot with his wedges and he's just a guy that goes for it. Like I've had, I've had three second places in a row from like Denny to Tommy to Rory. And it just, I felt this lack of like, especially with Tommy and Rory of like going for it. Like it bothered me that they would not go for those par fives in two out of a little bit of rough. And they both laid up. I have no doubt like Siwoo Kim is in a little bit of rough. He's absolutely going to go for it. He's going to play aggressive. He's going to play to win. So those are my two guys that I like best in sort of like that 50 to one range, who I think have a good bit of value this week if you write off the top. I particularly love the Siwoo play, and I have one more open space, and I'm he's, he's in heavy – him or Hideki, I've basically narrowed it down to because I think the Hideki number is starting to – creep up to a point that's a bit irresponsible i you know i i bet 35 on fee now who i also bet at 40 at the u.s open last week but i mean listen you can't you can't hold grudges with these guys for too long and Finau is now entering a golf course that i personally really like for him he's had some good finishes here before i really like him on these type of northeast bent grass greens he's had a lot of success in the northeast in the past he's had a lot of success out of this type of rough and on this type of general agronomy um he still played quite well at the u.s open and is now at a number where 40 was the best in market at the US Open in a tournament that had Brooks and Cam Smith and 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 all all of these other live players, not to mention Spieth, who's not here too. And I just thought, you know, I thought Finau was gonna be like, well, I guess he is. In most places he's 28, 25. But I thought the 35 that stood out to me was enough value for me to take a plunge. Um so I'm I'm Cantlay at 12, Finau at 35, and then um, that final spot that I have room for is is pretty much down to Siwoo and Hideki. And then I bet one guy at 251. Just real quick, should because I, I I've heard some discourse about this. Should if you have one spot for the Ryder Cup left, are you taking or I guess two spots for these four guys? Cam Young, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson. Who are your two? Ricky and JT. And I know JT's playing horrible, but he is, he is, him and Jordan are like co captains of that team. Yeah. And I think that he has earned through all of his performances at the President's Cup and Ryder Cups. 
he's earned a captain's pick. Um, it's like there was a lot of years when like Phil wasn't playing great. And it's just like, if you have a captain's pick, you just know he's going to get it. It feels like that with JT and, and Ricky has earned his way on the team. I don't think DJ has, I don't think that he's shown enough. And I look, I bet DJ last week. I thought I had like, I thought I freaking pegged that 45 to one was a crazy number on DJ in California. And I thought nobody was talking about him and I had the nuts and he couldn't make a putt. Um, That said, like, look, he made his bed. Like I'm, I'm not like completely anti live, but like this was one of the things that was very clear that you gave up when you went to live from the beginning, unless you find a way to like win a major and top five them all. Like Brooks is like on pace to do and qualify. You're just out. And, and Cam Young, I don't think should be on this team. Yeah. I want to dig more into the course before i think i'm with you by the way although i was going to flag and i'm glad that you did i mean dj flushed it at lacc i mean he was the only guy that was in contention that putted worse than rory i mean dj lost yeah dj lost over three strokes putting on sunday at lacc and uh, you know i on the telecast when I was watching on Sunday, it's like every time you flip to DJ, he's miss. It felt like he was missing so many short putts. So I agree. I think that DJ needs to do a little bit more. I think that he probably needs to contend at, at Liverpool. Right. But I'm not counting him out. Right. Like if JT and it seems like for all intensive purposes, there's some sort of injury that he just doesn't want to talk about right now. Mm -hmm. But if we see a situation where JT's missing the cut at Liverpool and not doing much in between and DJ's top sevening at Liverpool, I I might be ready to go in that direction. If we think it's not too detrimental to the, um, the ever encompassing, you know, word that probably gets overused in the Ryder cup team room. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that, I think that I can't count DJ out just yet. And I'm with you there. I think that if it were up, if I were Ryder cup captain, he would be very much in the conversation for me. I just don't think with Zach Johnson, he's going to be in that conversation from the way that I've sort of read into it. And it feels like Zach is probably pretty inclined to take Justin Thomas and Ricky. Right. Yeah. Like I think that yeah. he, yeah. And he's, I think he's pretty friendly with those guys and I don't mm-hmm. think he's spoken exactly. quite some time, but I think he, if I, if memory serves me correctly, given his friendships with guys like Davis love, he's been pretty firmly on the PGA tour stance in the sense that I don't, I don't know how willing he's going to be to give 50, 50 calls to live guys. Um, so I think you're, I think you're probably right on that one. All right. Any long shots you want to throw out before we get out of here? Oh yeah, I got two. So I took, uh, Steven Yeager, 150 to one. And there are like two twenties to two fifties on Adam Shank this week, Hmm. who I kind of like. So we had him on the tour junkie show. We actually had his caddy on last week and I I was kind of like, how does your boy just pull it out of nowhere? So he had a child and was basically getting like no sleep and finally had like a week of some rest and he finished second at colonial. And like, I do think that 
I've heard some people make the comps to like a little bit of Colonial and Valspar both this week in that they all have this sort of par fours from 400 to 450 yards. They're smaller greens. You've got to really hit a lot of fairways. You've got to control, you know, and hit your shots, moving them both ways. You've got to find the fairways and you've got to hit approach shots basically from the 150 to 175 yards really well. Uh, and he finished second runner up in both of those events. So I think like 225, probably not going to get there on the outright bet on shank, but I do think makes a decent like T40 play. Yeah, I like that as well. I um sp- specifically Jaeger too. I mean, I bet I bet Kirshner was all over that. He was on he, yeah, was, he was on preferred lines. Yeah, he told me we were texting earlier in the day. I know that was like his first bet of the week. So um yeah, I, I mean Ekro coming up. Did you get him early? I you know, I didn't. Um he's yeah, what people were getting him as high as two hundred and fifty to one, and now he's like as low as seventy and eighty. Yeah, he's like eighty to one now. I I think. Well, let me ask you this: Would you rather bet Ludwig or Ekro? Wow. Hmm. That's tough for me. I would probably say Ludwig, but like Ekro's been playing awesome. To yeah. me, you go. You to me, if they're both there at like eighty to one, you go down five points or 10 points and you can grab Sahith or you can grab Danny who I love. And like, I just yeah. feel like any of either two of like those two players or even Corey Connors is like 70 to one. Shane, Shane I like Lowry. I mean, good play. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. take one of those guys at 10 less points. If you're going to bet the other two at 80. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, I bet Bazaden Hout at 250 to one who I just, I thought there was a lot of value on that number on it. We talked about colonial too. And he, I, I like the way he performs on some of these shorter positional courses. Um, I've, I've bet Poseidon out at way worse numbers than 250 to one. And I had like 0.005 units left on my allotted, uh, betting card. So I, there was, I needed somebody 200 plus and, and I rolled the dice with him, but, um, I think that's I think that's all I got. Anyone else you want to shout out? Any other closing thoughts, my friend? No, I mean we're we're what what number? I guess like we're at this uncharted territory with Justin Thomas at sixty to one now. Like at at what num what price would it take for you to get behind him? Well, I've taken a lot of shit with JT because I've been I've been late to I've stuck around. Um, like he mm, was in yeah. my, he was in my DraftKings article at the U S open. I thought he was a really good DraftKings play at the U S so open. I. I bet him at, um, quail hollow, I believe. And I, I don't think I, I don't, I don't know. I might've bet him at the Memorial too. I definitely played him in DraftKings and wrote him up in DraftKings. So I've been a late adapter on this and, and total mea culpa hand up on that. I tend to, when guys are, when guys are not speaking about an injury and they're playing their regular schedule and JT, not only has he not said a word, he hasn't had any schedule tweaks whatsoever. In fact, he committed randomly like a week Detroit, and a half right? ago to Detroit, which is yeah. why are you committing to Detroit if you're hurt? I mean, I guess the answer probably is because he's like outside of the top 70 in the FedEx cup is probably the answer. But yeah. um, to answer your question, probably a hundred. Okay, what that's about what you? I was gonna say. Yeah, 100? yeah, I was gonna say a hundred. Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, probably a hundred. Cause then it's like, what do you have to lose by throwing 20 yeah. bucks on it? Um, yep. so yeah, I, I'm taking a break on him this week, but I, I sent out a tweet that got a ton of love where I said, JT's the only spring breaker left that didn't have a, a prolonged absence from our lives. So maybe he's just following suit and taking that extended vacation that we got from, uh, from Ricky for a year and Spieth for a little over a year and smiley before his triumphant return. Maybe, maybe this is JT's just uh time in the sun to, to relax a little bit before he uh, re-enters our lives and maybe eight months from now. Absolutely. He will be, he's not going to go full smiley and be on the coverage in no. two years from now. I'll tell you that he'll, he'll be back. No. Um, all right, Joe, what do you got? What else? I know you just recorded with Brian, but anything else you want to plug before we get out of here? Yeah. Uh, preferred lines is, is live now. Um, you can check out my Twitter feed at tour picks. I put everything out there. Betting card will be out Wednesday. Um, I graciously appreciate your time and the opportunity to come on one of my, one of my favorite pods every week. So thank you, man. Keep the great work and best to to you and Rick. I'll be doing the show on, on Wednesday with Rick as well for jock market power hour. So, um, things are going great, man. We got one major left and then the Ryder cup. So, uh, hopefully finish out a strong season here. Good to see you, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. All right. That is it for the podcast. Special thanks to Joe once again for joining me. Special thanks to rickrungood.com. And we'll be back on this podcast feed next week. In fact, we may have something a little bit earlier. Um, We'll see. I'm going to sit down and have a conversation uh, with one of my favorite golf writers, um, somebody who I've been following the work of and I have a ton of respect for for quite some time to go a little bit deeper on the USGA, the US Open, the US Open's identity, how that relates to architecture, um, what the fans want, what we consider a successful US Open what we should be striving for in these venues, what we can predict out of future venues, what the USGA actually wants out of venues. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone that I I just have a lot more thoughts on that deserves its own podcast. Um, And judging by the very polarizing reactions to this week's US Open, um, I hope there's an appetite, uh, especially with the guests that I'm bringing on to go a little bit deeper on it with. So that should be out maybe later this week or early next week. Uh, And until then, best of luck with your bets this weekend, and we will see you next time. Cheers. If I ventured in the slipstream between the viaducts of your dream, where a mobile steel rims crack. And the dead send the back road stop. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.